Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi. You're listening to Politics on the Couch, the podcast about politics, psychology, and upholstery. Well, not that last bit, but you get the metaphor without me having to spell it out by now. I'm Raphael Bear. I don't have to spell that out either. Although it's Raphael with an F, by the way. A lot of people seem to want to use a PH. Now, we're approaching the parliamentary recess. By the time you listen to this, we might already be in it. So this is our end of term, end of season episode. Trying to get a bit of distance from the daily to and fro of Westminster. Zoom out a bit, see some wider trends. And for that, I'm joined by a writer whose perspective on politics, history and culture is, in my experience, always illuminating. He is David Aronovich, formerly a colleague of mine at The Observer many years ago. Before that, The Independent, later The Times, presenter of the BBC's excellent briefing room, author of some great books, and most recently, publisher of Notes from the Underground. One of the Substack newsletters that gives me confidence in the whole concept of Substack newsletters, by which I mean I'm a subscriber and a very satisfied customer. Now, the prompt that turns my general appreciation of David's work into an actual invitation to the podcast is something he wrote about national conservatism, an international franchise of religious and social reaction that has gained a certain purchase on the Tory party as it fishes around for something to believe in after Brexit. David soaked up three full days of a National Conservative conference, listening to what its acolytes and fellow travellers had to say, taking them seriously enough to make an informed judgment about whether some of their frankly unserious ideas could one day be a credible force in British politics. And, well, the answer to that is coming up. We went on to talk more widely about the profound ideological crisis in the Tory party whether the Brexit referendum result and ostensible realignment of party allegiance under Boris Johnson was more evanescent than many commentators judged at the time, and whether Keir Starmer is equipped, in character and doctrine, to capitalise on Conservative implosion. Other things too, it was a very enjoyable rambling conversation about the general state of everything political. But it started at that National Conservative Convention. You really committed. You did the full three days, the deep dive. Is that because you think there's something coherent there worth analysing at length? Or was it more a kind of an anthropological fascination? I did it out of morbid fascination, really. Anthropological was also interesting, but I think it was actually more forensic. I mean, you know, who, who murdered this person? and How can we tell how they died? And the victim here, to be clear, is... The Conservative Party, the, what the, or what's left of the Conservative Party that they used to be before about 2016, and why it might be in this sort of zombified stagger towards a different ideology. And and we might as well be clear for listeners what it is national conservatism actually purports to believe, because as you say, some of it is quite out there, even by the standards of the hard right turn that the conservatives 
took when they embraced Brexitism. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that you and I have both seen over the course of the last half decade, maybe last decade, is this strange phenomenon which um, we'd never quite witnessed before, which was of orthodox conservatives moving to the far right or coming into some kind of relationship with the far right, some of them kind of knowingly and some of them without realising quite what they were doing. So people who wouldn't have 10 years ago have made their main uh, emphasis anti-immigration uh, have essentially become increasingly and more radicalised anti-immigration. Uh, people who would have been in favour of um, international capitalism and international competition have become incre- increasingly in favour of national economics um, and almost, in some senses, almost a movement towards corporate economics than they would have been. And one of the things that I found interesting about it was that looking at the, some of what you might call the accommodations which were happening happening in the hall in front of me in terms of uh, conservative politicians who are making speeches from various bits of the party, not wings of the party, from various bits, factions almost of the party. Um, It was clear that they were at kind of different stages of their movement towards this position. But essentially, what what it is in British terms is a desperate attempt to find something to say to the electorate about why it is that somebody other than uh, Labour and the centre-left ought to be elected at the next election. I mean, I'm failing, but we'll come on to the failure in a moment. So what you have there is a combination of people who are deeply ideologically committed to a particular set of viewpoints, which was certainly what the organisers were trying to get at. People who kind of wandered in off the streets, questing for a position to take up so they could say that they had one. And, And I think absolutely failing in british terms to to discover anything which you would which would actually have a significant appeal to the british electorate and modern britain as it actually is as opposed to what they would have liked like it to be or what they think it was 40 or 50 years ago okay but the core of uh, of the sort of the british component of this the thing that make that might make you think actually britain is vulnerable or fertile for a thing called national conservatism is the Brexit coalition, isn't it? So I mean, that is very interesting. That question of to what extent conservative politicians who have sort of splashed around in the shallow end of of the rivers of blood type rhetoric on immigration are being disingenuous about the nationalism or or cynical or, or willingly going there. And you know there was certainly a lot of you know, liberal free trader in quotes you know, Brexiteers from in the sort of Daniel Hannan mould a little bit Jacob Rees Mogg who would, would sort of profess it almost to be sort of, they, the, to be following the tradition of 19th century free trader liberalism but of course they needed the votes of quite hard right anti-immigration uh, populism to get you know a, across the, the finishing line and someone like Dominic Cummings played that very cynically it's, it's very hard to know you, you can imagine that in sort of something in their hearts skips a beat a little bit about thoughts of the triumph of the will and you know it's not hard to imagine them sort of marching in step uh, and burning books really i mean that's but yeah that, that maybe that's a bit unfair i, I wouldn't, wouldn't want to libel individuals in that respect but you know what i mean and then you got the sort of boris johnson 2019 electoral coalition which very brilliantly brought together traditional working class labor voters in what we've come to call the red wall while holding on to these sort of orthodox, Thatcherite, uh, professional blue, what we now call the blue wall. And so it's not hard to see how actually, oh, hang on a second, here there is something that is a, a bit nationalist and pretty traditionally conservative. But it, we, we don't, well, hey, you know, here is the winning coalition. They, they're, not, they, they're not making it up, are they? I honestly do think that this is partially based on a misreading of what has happened in recent uh, British political history. For my money... It was always a significant chance that the Brexit referendum would be lost because we had never, as a country, taken the idea of being in the European Union to our heart. And virtually everything that every major politician had done after 2010 was essentially a growing criticism of the European Union, including by those who uh, then ended up, like David Cameron, saying we should stay in the European Union. So some of us were kind of observing this for for a long time. When it was lost, by not very many votes, uh, and it's worth remembering that over the last 20 or 30 years, 
years, other countries have had similarly close votes, but they've just tended to go the other way. If you imagine for a moment, uh, Raphael, that it had been 52-48 the other way, um, we wouldn't have been talking in quite the same way, although being liberals, of course, we would have agonised about the about how we had won in a way that the Brexiteers never agonised about the size of the, of the group of people who were against them ever, but simply kind of made the assumption that they'd won 70-30 or something like that. Uh, out of this came this kind of image of how Britain was uh, electorally. Part, I think, of the Brexit vote had something to do with the fact that the Labour Party had just committed this kind of major act of semi-harakiri by uh, electing Jeremy Corbyn, uh, a committed anti-common market person uh, as their leader, and to say the least, an unenthusiastic pro-European. But I'm not going to blame him entirely. I think, you know, the writing the writing was on the wall for that one for a very, very long time before. But the assumption that was made off the back of it was, here you have this enormous group of people, we tended to call them Red Wall, who were so disaffected by globalisation and immigration and were so nationalistic and patriotic, etc. And God alone knows there were enough kind of commentators and book writers, etc., trying to boost this as an image, that this effectively told you the whole story of modern British politics, or the, uh, British politics in the last 15 to 20 years. And they called this realignment. Well, after the 2017 election, when uh, Theresa May nearly lo uh, actually lost her majority, if you looked into the weeds of the voting, what you could see was a very, very much more complex picture. And what I thought I saw was what you would call dealignment, not realignment. In other words, people were becoming massively more likely to say what's in it for me for voting this particular party than they were to say, this is the party my parents voted for. This is my party my class votes for. For. This is the part, uh, party that people like me vote for. And I think that has been borne out. But of course, we so we have sailed along on this, what I call this red wall semi-myth, uh, really, of this sort of... Now, one of the things that tells you it's a semi-myth is if you look at the generational voting in those same seats, what you see is that the younger people in those seats don't vote the same way as the older people in those seats. It's one of the kind of big things. Well, that hardly argues realignment in that kind of way. I think it argues, as I said, for dealignment because younger people simply felt they had a different set of interests in the parties and in the outcome. So what I'm saying is this concentration on this particular aspect of a political division in Britain, which has been incredibly lucrative, by the way, for some people, uh, and have based entire kind of careers and quite well-selling books on it, uh, uh, and so on, and now seek to kind of hoik their political careers off the back of it, um, was over was overbaked. And what we've seen, I think, in the course of the last few years partially has been, if you like, a kind of playing out of dealignment, not of realignment. Yeah, I think I'd agree that it's been overbaked. Uh, and certainly there are two things I'd sort of add to in support of that analysis. So there was a reluctance on both the left and the right to accept quite how much the 2019 general election result was about people just not wanting Jeremy Corbyn to be prime minister, because on the right, people wanted it to be Boris Johnson's amazing charisma that brought all these people over. And obviously on the left, people didn't want to admit that Jeremy <laughs> Corbyn was that unpopular. So that sort of, yeah, that, that, so the 2016 referendum result was then, you know, distorted and amplified by the particular dynamics of 2019. 2017's interesting because actually, and here's where I think something like Nick Timothy is quite interesting because it was his, you know, he was sort of the godfather of a red wall strategy, Theresa May's chief of staff. He he had already had this analysis that actually there were an awful lot of people who were quite left wing in their economic preferences. They didn't understand or buy this sort of libertarian idea that government is your enemy, you should get out of the way. They want the government to look after them and give them stuff and help them with stuff, but had very social conservative values. And actually... You know, the, the big 2019 leap, the knocking down of the red wall, was done on the shoulders of gains that Theresa May made. Unfortunately, she just threw away a load of seats everywhere else because she's sort of self-sabotaged in the campaign. We don't need to go into that. But so it does, that does to me suggest that while you're right, the whole thing has been over-egged and that there's, that there's been this whole industry that's driven partly by people going off and writing books about, you know, how, how terribly benighted and, and left behind everyone was in certain areas, even if that's not actually a majority of the electorate, and even if their children and grandchildren are, are going to vote Labour. Something about that 
resentment, grievance was sufficiently resonant to make it, for want of a better term, just a really an interesting analytical challenge to the question of actually what British or English national identity means in the 21st century. And the fact that it was, and the fact that it resonated also with what happened in the US, and it was clearly at some level analogous to the forces that had propelled Donald Trump into the White House, meant you couldn't ignore it as a, a cultural moment. One of the things that's interesting about the National Conservatism Conference was, um, firstly, you have to understand the organisers are a a few very right-wing Israelis and very right-wing Americans who essentially fund this thing called National Conservatism uh, and so on, with big links now to um, Viktor Orban in Hungary and so on. You get a very odd kind of three-way position. And it is based on a huge antipathy towards immigration, huge antipathy towards uh, 60s liberalism and liberalism uh, all told, although incredibly limited in practice by what it thinks it can get away with. So um, uh, so victorious as 60s liberalism been. But essentially, uh, these are people who are anti-abortion, anti-feminism, very pro-religion. The National Conservatives are extremely pro-religion, most of which do not sit in a British context particularly well, but which may sit in an American context, may sit in a Hungarian context. And ironically, is the absolute uber text of Vladimir Putin's approach towards uh, Russian nationalism uh, and what Russianism should actually consist of, which was also something which they were reluctant to recognise in the National Conservatives Conference, although their support for Ukraine was very much more muted than that of the British Conservative Party, another kind of division that there was between, much quieter division than there was between uh, uh, between them and the Conservatives on the side subject of um, of free markets, uh, etc. So you have to try and understand that this national conservatism as a project, and as it is now turned into the new conservatives, this body that was set up a, a couple of weeks ago, which is essentially the national conservatives wing inside the cons- conservative party, is incredibly reluctant to speak its name fully etc., give, give kind of hints uh, and so on about the need to have more babies, etc., when you're going to have more babies. Well, in that case, you've got to try and take away the stigma that they say attaches to women having babies and not working. I mean, and one of the best-received speech, if not the best-received speech over the three days, was that by Melanie Phillips, uh, the columnist for The Times. And she made a description of what they believe in Red Wall Britain, which actually had nothing to do with Red Wall Britain. You could, you know, you could walk through most of the kind of seats that she's talking about, and you simply wouldn't find people who believe the kind of combination of things that she believes. It was much more suited to uh, ultra orthodox communities in Israel, and she spends a lot of her time now in Israel. And actually, the ultra orthodox community is very much pushed forward by people who want to show you what you could do with birth rates if you really tried to have more babies. And I'm not even joking. And and we smile at this. But you couldn't understand. This is what they believe. Uh, you know, the people in the audience were an absolutely bizarre mixture of what seemed to be public schoolboys gone to um, disappointing universities, who were now working for various right-wing think tanks and campaign organisations uh, based in central London. And there is a kind of proliferation. So I even discovered this week an organisation which exists to put young, get young people onto GB News and talk TV. Intuitively, I agree with you that particularly the reactionary religious element, this peculiar hybrid of ultra-religious, ultra-Zionism that's come out of an Israeli nationalist movement and evangelical, Christian, radical, right-wing American politics, it doesn't feel to me that's going to take root very effectively in the UK. But as you (laughs) describe it, this sense that there are an awful lot of conservatives who are sort of fishing around for something to believe in, partly, I think, because the sort of the Thatcher-Reagan consensus is now a generation old and isn't delivering economically. And they don't really have an economic story to tell, especially because the Liz Truss government was, you know, it was like the sort of the moment where you have a cult and you say the, the, the second coming is going to come on the 24th of October and then it reached the 25th of October and it hasn't come. And you're left without, with anything, with nothing. This is a great disappointment. It, it, it felt like that kind of moment for that type of secular libertarian conservative ideology. So they're fishing around for something. But I 
still can't. So if, even if it's not national conservatism, even if we move on from that, the sense that there are still an awful lot of, as you say, underachieving, often pretty privileged, angry white virgins uh, and uh, sort of people who want, who hate immigration and want to feel that they're not allowed to express what they truly believe about immigration and foreigners, probably because actually, I mean, there isn't much room left in terms of what you can't say about that stuff, except for the bits that are actual fascism uh, and all these other things swirling around. And I want to believe that that is just a really fringe position in the UK, but it has you know, encroached very significantly onto the mainstream of the Conservative Party. So moving on from the sort of the spe- that specific weird cults that is the national conservative thing into this broader question of where that type of nationalism could go in the UK, how much purchase would a, a sort of an indigenous British version of that get, do you think? I suppose the caveat here is it depends on circumstances. I mean, you, I suppose you can imagine a situation of economic collapse. Let's say a Labour is elected at the next uh, election. Let's say that the economic circumstances don't get any better. In fact, they get worse for various reasons uh, and so on. And people start casting around for uh, people to blame. Then under those circumstances, I suppose it is possible that uh, younger voters, and by the, I actually mean voters under 60 or under 50, might be more persuaded than they are currently that this is all the fault of these dark forces and therefore align with people who want to make that their point of of blame. And it's also possible that you might get a Conservative Party or a political force that does the thing that you're suggesting, that uh, it's not that it's social conservatism. The social conservatism is for the birds. You're just talking about anti-immigration, essentially. Because Frankly, there is no market in this country for running anti-gay uh, campaigns and for saying, you know, you should be able to discriminate. There just isn't one. So you can forget about it. It's all about immigration, really. There is. That's the only string to that particular uh, fiddle, which they have to play upon. But you're talking about the circumstances under which it might it might be played successfully when you require uh, a scapegoat for failure. But even then... You can see why that's fundamentally unsatisfactory. Let's let's talk a bit about the uh, the economics of it because it's a huge problem for the Conservative Party to posit the idea that a Conservative Party. I mean, in uh, Prime Minister's Question Time, you had Oliver Dowden uh, uh, retorting to Angela Rayner that he was proud that his parents were able to buy their council house because of Mrs Thatcher. Uh, in other words, the invocation of the great god, uh, uh, goddess of the free market, and so on. Can you imagine a Conservative Party? which turns around and says, actually, that was a bad thing. We absolutely, I mean, there are people around the edges, you know, occasionally you'll get a kind of David Willits who says, well, maybe we didn't kind of, you know, think this one through properly and so on. But the locus of the Conservative Party is in making money and is in uh, the circumstances in which the kind of people that they are tend to make money. If they're not, if they're not that, they really aren't anything at all. They have to essentially disband and become something else. They would actually have to split. Now, we all know what happens to parties that split under first past the post, which is they don't do very well. So you'd actually have to change the electoral system for that to have any kind of that to have any kind of traction. Which means that all they are left with, Raphael, is the anti-immigration stance. It's all they've got. There isn't anything else. I can't see anything which they could use to motivate people to vote. Well, maybe crime. Maybe crime would be the other kind of, you know, kind of really frighten people with crime. But that's about that's about the end of it. You're not going to kind of bring back hanging. They're not going to um uh, bring back flogging. They're not going to do be able to kind of go back, reach back into the kind of grab bag of history. They're not going to win it by doing the particular kind of reactionary preoccupations of the British right by reintroducing grammar schools or something like this. And maybe I'm being unimaginative here, but I honestly can't see what they've got. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. 
Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Already, yeah, there is the the catch-all term woke and they talk about cultural Marxism and all these things. And I agree that that doesn't seem to have a huge amount of resonance for people who can't get a GP appointment and who haven't had a pay rise since 2007 <laughs> in real terms. I mean, it, it feels to me, again, part of the sort of fishing around. But it, it it's interesting. I think your point is right that you know, the scenario where Labour get in for fiscal reasons, you know, they really can't actually buy an immediate improvement in a lot of people's circumstances uh, and you've got a conservative party that is sort of liberated from even having to pretend to try and do responsible government so at the moment Rishi Sunak there's a sort of there's a Braverman um, you know small boats thing and he is one horse that he's trying to ride and then there's the sort of Windsor framework serious fiscal discipline horse that he's trying to ride one of which is technocratic grown-up government and the other one is just mad stuff he has to say to satisfy his party uh, and he's being pulled apart because he can't do both at the same time. One of those horses just is, is, is going to bolt because there'll be an opposition. I do wonder how, in that situation, a, a nationalist, purely oppositional party could start to mobilise grievances a little bit in the terms that you know we we, ha- we haven't named him yet, but I feel the sort of the Matthew Goodwin thesis about new elites and cultural institutions that are always patronizing you and telling you what to believe it's very interesting i find this analysis quite interesting because it's predicated on on the idea that you just have to deny that the party that sold you brexit and has implemented it for the last few years has actually had its hands on the levers of government in the last few years it's all about power being in the in in belonging to them and not us and it, it feels to me there are an awful lot of people around conservatism and different iterations of English nationalism that are desperate to get into opposition so that can be true, so that they can say power, look, now power really is in the hands of the people who we currently say it's in the hands of, so they can mobilise that grievance. And I wonder then, so there's two questions really, do you, do you think that's the case? Do you think the conservatives or a large number of conservatives are now itching to get into opposition for that reason? And if they do... You know, will they then, will that be basically Tory Corbynism and they'll be 15, 20% <laughs> but actually dooming themselves, gifting Labour two terms? Or actually, is there, is there something more sinister that could happen then? I, I can see why one might be inclined to um, credit one's political opponents who have, after all, been successful in the past with some kind of um, exceptional gifts of strategy uh, and foresightedness. I, 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 and, and you see them more close up than I do. I don't go to Westminster and so on. But looking at it from but I just don't see it. I don't see, I absolutely don't see it. I don't see it anywhere. I don't see it in any shape or form. I don't say, see it in any of their think tank, many think tanks. I don't see it in any of their approaches. I see nothing. Uh, strategic. Now, it may be, as you say, that in opposition, you can just kind of move into a kind of purely nihilistic, if you like, almost kind of version of uh, American republicanism, what happened with the Tea Party in the first place, and then Trumpism in the second place. But, and you cannot stress this enough, we just aren't America. Uh, in the first instance, we don't have the incredible hostility to the state that the Ameri- that the that is in the American system. Far from it. Our er memory of 1940 is the one where everybody plus the state comes together in the common wheel. That's how we think about it. That's one of the reasons why, to the consternation of sections of the right in this country, we had church services to celebrate the 75th anniversary of the NHS. It's, you know, something which is kind of rather unimaginable in the case of America, where you probably would get together to celebrate the 75th anniversary of Walmart. The other thing that we see is that younger people, um, and I buy younger people, again, I stress this, I don't mean eight-year-olds, 
I mean, anybody under the age of 50 has taken with them and uh, uh, from their earlier days a set of liberal attitudes which are simply not conducive to the kind of authoritarianism which is the bedrock of, of, of this kind of nationalistic approach. Let's take an absolutely wonderful example of what happens every single time that nationalists start talking about what policy should be. National service. It always comes up and so on. And you always know exactly the same thing. Even David Cameron had a kind of little tilt at something that might be the national service. Uh, national service. It fails in this country, not because we are not collective, but because we don't see the, uh, the collective in that way. We don't militarise it uh, and so on. I think we would have to fail so spectacularly as a nation under a new Labour government for that situation in some sense to be reversed. I, I honestly can't see it. And, I, and this is the point I'm trying to make, Raphael. I think we're wasting our time with this. We're wasting our time with Matt Goodwin. He makes sure we waste our time with him by being provocative, by naming people like you and me as being part of the new elite and sticking it out, you know, because, you know, I was in Oxford for two terms. I'm part of the new elite, etc. whereas he's only a kind of professor of politics at, at so-and-so. His speech, which was a very coherent far-right speech given to the National uh, the National Conservatives thing, I, 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 uh, along with Melanie Phillips, I thought, okay, here's your two wonderful speeches. Where's your party? Why are you a commentator and a professor? You not And not only that, why are you ever only ever going to be a commentator and a professor? Because neither of you will have the guts to go and start a political party or become candidates for your political parties because you know in your heart of hearts that this is a minority position and you're not going to win from it. Now, we know that these days you can make money from monetizing niches, etc. You don't have to have everybody. The days of 45 million people, 40 million people watching the same TV program are over. This is all about whether you can get a large enough group to actually make it worth your while and do well out of it. You know, it's the difference between license fee income and subscription income, if you like. And I think that people like us have been transfixed, partly because of Trumpism, partially because of Brexit, into accepting these people at their own recognizance. Uh, because they're so certain, because they give it with both barrels, and because we think we've seen a bit of it in a way that we didn't quite like in various places. Yeah, I think I think that's right. Certainly, to the extent that there was a kind of shock after in 2016 that became a, a, a liberal self-loathing or a centrist sort of flinch that accepted the narrative of, as you said earlier, the the, the great. Realignment. I think also part of that was recognition that even if it wasn't, even if the the scale of it was exaggerated, uh, the the cultural fact of a kind of detached, slightly sneering uh, graduate impatience with a whole sections of provincial Britain and British politics, seeing them, seeing it as essentially the dustbin of history through their period of globalisation. And you know, the, I, I'm just thinking in particular about the complacency that built up in the sort of first decade of the 21st century, uh, New Labour in its pomp, just Euroscepticism having been this thing that angry red-faced men with egg uh. yolk stains on their regimental ties had used to bring down John Major. There was just no need to sort of exercise the kind of arguments for a centrist liberal project and certainly not for Britain's membership of the European Union, um, because it clearly, you know, we had, the, you know, we were being carried along by the tide of history. And so I think the recognition of that complacency then fed a sort of almost excessive recoil. That means, as you say, we are overly deferential to, um, actually a minority nationalist position. But that gets that has a lot of moral urgency and gets a lot of purchase. Also, partly, and this is where where I want to get to really from this rambling question, <laughs> because of the structures of the way the British media work. And so it'll be it's going to be very interesting if your analysis is right, and I, I find it very persuasive. And the the Tories sort of slump into opposition and then embrace a kind of anti woke. Uh, reactionary nationalism with no economic coherent argument at all. You know, are the Mail and the Telegraph and the Sun and the rest going to just look at that and go, behold, this is absurd and ridiculous because actually we need to sort of, we have a commercial interest in representing the whole country? Or are they going to do what sort of 
Fox did? Are they going to sort of go get, try and puff it up and get behind this sort of weird republicanization of the Conservative Party, which would be a problem for Keir Starmer, even if it's only representing 20% of people, it can still, you know, as we know, fill 55, 60% of public debate. There's an awful lot in that. I mean, one of the things that we should recognise, by the way, is that the media landscape, if we're just talking about what it is that people are listening to uh, or reading, etc., has changed significantly since the days when uh, the sun, it was the sun what won it. Uh, and so on. So actually, the Sun doesn't have a vast number of readers, and nor does the Daily Mail in the sense of reading the newspaper. Um, what you're talking about, really, is whether or not certain memes get to be fundamentally believed. Um, uh, let's take an example, the kind of cut-throughs of Nigel Farage's arguments at the time of Brexit. Um, you could see that they got very significant traction in the ways that they were actually formulated. You could actually find people repeating them back to you in conversations and so on in a way that you would never really get people repeating back to you in conversations things to do with the European Union by the way the fact of the loss of the referendum changed all that so now you can get pro-European nostrums repeated back to you in kind of odd situations where you never did before the fact is I find this deeply frustrating because I could see I thought what a catastrophe the business of leaving the EU would be I think there were quite a lot of people in Labour and elsewhere who thought it's not very good and it probably won't happen. But, you know, it's not the worst thing in the world if it does. Well, what they discovered was it was one of the worst things in the world if it did. Uh, and they realised that almost the day after it happened. And now, five, six, seven disastrous years later, they can really see it in space. And it's going to really take some time for nationalism to live that one down, by the way, you know, as a kind of huge mistake. And it doesn't get to look less of a huge mistake. And actually, if you want to look at one of the differences between us and say, you're some of the European nationalists and how strong they are, is simply we've had Brexit and they haven't. You know, that's one of the reasons for the difference. So there's really not to be not much to be said for it. What's it got us? I think you alluded, uh, alluded to that earlier. But my point was rather... Uh, also, that the problem with concentrating on this particular point of analysis, which has transfixed us, as I said, is we don't look at the other points. We look at some of them, like what's the situation for younger voters econo economically? What are they getting out of things? What can they expect? What can they demand? What's going to happen if there is genuine generational angst and anger in this country? But compared with the Red Bull, we've completely underanalyze this. And this is partially because, as you say, you were talking about the narrative established by these particular newspapers. That's partially because we've allowed the narrative to be set. I mean, there isn't anything that Matthew Goodwin hasn't appeared upon. There isn't anything. You know, he's written for the Mail, he's written for the Telegraph, he's written for... And of course, he gets stuck on the BBC as well. And people like him appearing kind of question time, etc. Because it, it's a turn, it's an argument, it's... Um, and so, and so even if it doesn't have really kind of significant resonance. However, the stark underlying realities are actually the ways in which people live their lives and the things which they experience and the ways in which they relate to them and the things they think about the world are not conducive to mail editorials and sun editorials and telegraph editorials. They really are not. This is not that country. Quite how that will... Con I mean, of course, we think the answer to this would be a massively increased uh, audience for The Guardian and for the David Aronovich Substack, um, uh, which currently kind of boasts, you know, fully 10,000 subscribers, etc., out of the 66 million Britons that there are. We know how difficult it is in a kind of if you like, kind of appealing to uh, greater numbers of people. But nevertheless, if you look, if you look deep down into the polling of attitudes and what it is the British people are like, what it is they believe in, what their values are, they are so much closer to the centre-left, the centre and centre-left, than they are to the right. It seems positively perverse sometimes to keep banging on about Matthew bloody Goodwin. Well, then let's leave Matthew Goodwin behind. I, I agree. And you've raised something that is my other cause for alarm slash dread slash heedless pessimism, <laughs> which is, as you say, the sort of generational unfairness. There is 
there's pretty good polling data now that shows that younger generations, millennials and downwards, so people who are now in their 30s and younger, are not as intuitively enthusiastic about the basic principles of democracy as older voters. And some of that's expressed in the fact they don't, they don't vote for a start, but also they say things like they, are, they respond positively to questions, statements rather, such as actually Britain could do with a, a leader who doesn't have to bother with parliaments and other complexities and should just be able to get on with what he thinks or she thinks is right. These sorts of things, they're, they're kind of quite, it's a little, can be a little bit alarming when you see that data. And then you look at the context where wage stagnation, as I said, I think has been the feature of the UK economy now since 2007. The dream of home ownership it has slipped away from a couple of generations now. Uh, the sort of underlying promise of post-war liberal capitalism, which was that you, you'll lead a better life than your parents had, um, has been broken now for at least a generation, possibly two. And I, I wonder how long you can rely on an abstract attachment to the moral certainty that democracy is the best system when actually economically it's simply not doing what it, what it's supposed to do on the tin in terms of improving yeah. people's lives before the legitimacy of the political system unravels. There are two elements uh, to that. I mean, let's get rid of the minor element, which is what what do the alternatives look like? I mean, even even kind of very roughly. And the answer is they don't look like anything, really. Um, so what what you're talking about is not really a kind of necessarily a yearning or a pushing towards the anti-democratic, but a kind of despairing. Um, which is it's a, it, it becomes its own kind of its own kind of enemy, uh, demoralizing enemy, and I think we can identify absolutely. I mean, one of the things that gives you incidentally some kind of reason for hope about how people's attitude is just how important almost all sections of the population, apart from the oldest, think, for example, that net zero and action for climate change is because this is, if you like, a kind of overarching value because you can't actually say it will lead one way or another to something next week or next year for you in terms of your kind of material benefit and yet people understand its importance and incidentally one of the things that I kind of worry about when I look at uh, Labour um, is I think we can see that there are a whole set of things that need to be set in train for the long term which have been dodged all kinds of things which have been dodged I'm just one of the things that really strikes me as you know I, I present a program called the briefing room on, on the BBC in which I am completely, I, I'm not, I don't have opinions like this and so on. But one thing I have noticed is that time and again, when we've looked at the kind of, you know, like kind of some of the deep, the deep problems and talked uh, and talked about how that you might solve them or how they came about, the lack of forward planning and investment. Or it comes up time and time and time again. It's not as if we don't know what we need to do for 20 years down the road. Question is whether you can sell people or whether you think you can benefit politically from actually taking the action which, from taking the action which, which helps you do that. So. Your worry a bit is that Labour will be so tra will be so worried about the short term and short term gain that it won't be bold enough to say the things that need to be done in the longer term. Uh, let's take a, a, an example which is which is which is quite interesting in that if we believe that we need probably to get as close to the European single market as possible in order to restart growth, in order to be able to be able to do some of these things. We know that Labour is incredibly reluctant for the time being to say anything about that for fear of being accused of reopening the European question. Well, I get that, and I know you get that as well. You don't want to say we're going back in. But on the other hand, every now and again, some of the things that Labour seems to be saying is, we know you in the red wall really don't like Europe, so we're not going to say anything useful about what it is we may very well find ourselves needing to do two, three, four years into a Labour government. I don't think they need to do that personally. I can understand why they think they need to do that. But that's just a kind of example of the kind of thing that we are talking about. The scale of the task for an incoming Labour government is really huge. You kind of wonder whether or not um, the individuals who've, who will have it as the job will actually, or whether anybody would be up to it. So that's your kind of big, big worry. But let's imagine for a moment 
that some of the things that we've been talking about actually are addressable, that we could begin significant house building programs and so on within, let's say, a couple of years of a Labour government. We find the mechanisms with which to do it and beat off the challenges which will inevitably be created in, in trying to get there. Not least MPs in certain seats representing constituents who don't want anything built. Absolutely classic Lib Dem problem. Solve the housing problem, but don't build any houses here. And it could easily become everybody's kind of problem. If you could imagine a Labour government beginning to address and being, vis- um, being visibly beginning to address this, I think that the voters would give them some latitude. And I think that might usefully go towards some of the things that, that you are worried about. Or at least I think you and I are saying the same thing, which is, Let's hope that Labour does behave like that. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, quite. Now, so this is, there's a couple of things. First of all, I am not going to be tempted down that very enticing Brexit rabbit hole you just offered to me. Uh, te- obviously, I could easily plunge down at length, but I'm going to resist that because I'm, it, it's very interesting that I think there are, I'm going to try and connect two things that you said there, which um, uh, might not actually be connectable. But one is the, that point about there isn't actually an alternative doctrine to liberal democracy that's really available. I mean, no one's looking at Vladimir Putin's Russia and going, actually, that guy's got it worked out. That you know, the, apart from the mad national conservative illiberalism and about how you know we should have more babies uh, and trans rights are basically effeminizing society and we should all be much more Slavic and masculine. So no one, you know, apart from mad people, actually believes that stuff. A more interesting argument you get from the sort of Chinese Communist Party which is, and by interesting, I don't mean valid. I just mean uh, it requires a little bit more rebuttal, which because it, that system is actually working in terms of achieving a kind of superpower parity with the US, possibly overtaking the US feasibly in the 21st century, which is that liberal democracies can't make those long-term decisions because they are so uh, sort of beholden to these, these elected politicians are so beholden to Uh, not just the electoral cycle, but a kind of short-term consumerist cult of instant gratification that they just don't have the will or the imagination to do the hard things. And this is actually true that on certain aspects of the climate agenda, the Chinese Communist Party putting in infrastructure, electric car charging, those sorts of things is actually doing remarkably well compared to democracies where as soon as you say we need to re-insulate everyone's houses someone goes well who's going to pay for it and then the the whole thing falls apart now i'm not saying that in defense of chinese communist rule i'm just saying it's an interesting challenging argument that we might that in the third decade of the 21st century there's something about the instant gratification culture of liberal democracy accelerated by the online digital culture of having a referendum on politics every five seconds via twitter or whatever the successors to twitter might turn out to be that it is really hard for any government to make those long-term decisions. And that might be different to how it was when, say, Tony Blair became Prime Minister in 1997 or even more recently. Well, if we imagine that our equivalent of the of Xi Jinping would be Elon Musk, I think we've also demonstrated within the last uh, couple of years the limitations. I mean, it's worth remembering that there was a quite a long period, and maybe this is because I really am such an antique now, but the, you regularly used to if you ask British people in polls whether or not they think a good businessman should take over the you know, the, 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 the reins of the, of the state, they would probably say yes, uh, and so on. There was this kind of reification of the idea of business expertise, um, which was not to say that there wasn't something to be said for harnessing business expertise. It's just that in practice, quite a lot of it turned out not to be quite as expert as you thought it was, uh, and so on. Now, you're you're putting a proposition to me which actually doesn't... I don't think it's the thing you think it is. The proposition I think you think you're putting to me is that people might quite like somebody like Xi Jinping in charge of them. But this is not really a kind of option. Whereas the proposition you're really putting to me is, isn't it true that the Chinese system offers its leaders some major advantages when it comes to making big decisions and planning big things for the future? Like, can I actually take down this entire neighborhood and if anybody objects stick them all in choky until the you know or, or maybe even shoot a few of them and that's absolutely true you can't argue with that you know if you if well, there's a middle way i mean you've got france haven't you i mean so you know where they you could basically if they want to build a motorway or a new railway line they get to do it a little bit you know they could buy a certain element of fiat more than the uk does um yeah. without it being as one party dictatorship 
Yeah, and the quid pro quo for that is the French are allowed to burn places down every few years uh, 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 and blockade all the roads, etc. That's essentially the quid pro quo. You do that to us, and every now and again we do this to you, and this is how we kind of get along. Okay, well, it's not the British. It's not really the British way. If we get somebody going slow with just you know with the with, with the oil protesters, etc., everybody gets absolutely incandescent about it because you're holding a bus up for five seconds. Um, and that's the way we are. We're not, you know, again. It's a, ma- it's a matter of national culture. We could agree that we would like politicians to be bolder because we can't be China, uh, etc., in making decisions, and therefore, but having to be at the same time more persuasive to the electorate that this is what requires to be done because we rule by consent and we're not going to do it in any other way until Elon Musk does actually invade. That's what, what and that's where it is very important to know. What is the difference between UK and American political culture? Because it feels now that the US is close to a level of polarization where that, those, that foundational point about loser's consent and you accept that while you might violently disagree with the other side, you are collectively invested enough in the overarching enterprise of the democracy that, um, that the system rubs along that. That, you know, with people inhabiting totally separate sort of epistemological silos, where that you know, I saw something just recently where the economic data in the US about how it's performing about confidence in the economy is now less and less reliable because Republican voters will believe the economy is doing worse than it is because there's a Democrat in the White House and vice versa. Yeah. And so it's it's incredibly difficult to sort of get that feeling. That's that's the the very fact that the next election is going to be between Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer suggests that is not us and we are not we are even moving away from that, uh, which is I think encouraging. Yeah. I do worry specifically in the case of Keir Starmer that in order to achieve the sort of thing we've just been talking about for the last couple of minutes requires you know, if, if you don't want a demagogue, you at least need a really compelling storyteller. And although Keir Starmer has actually been skilled in getting to the position he is in where it looks like he's a shoo-in to be prime minister. His greatest deficiency is the storytelling element where you can say to people, this is the this is the reward for deferred gratification. And also just a final point on this, I do think it's a problem that that was Boris Johnson's greatest skill and he's devalued and discredited that kind of optimism for a generation. Yeah, I mean, I, I rather well, I rather wonder, Raphael, whether this isn't slightly kind of Westminster-ish, actually. The great stories we're talking about are not, if you like, are not Boris Johnson stories, which are just kind of, you know, puff and uh, and good words, etc. What we're talking about, when we talk about good stories for Keir Starmer, is here's what Britain needs to do, uh, because this is the situation we've got into. These are the pro- these are the things we need to do to get there. These are the problems we will encounter along the way. I want to persuade you that the things that we have to do, which seem difficult to get to the place we need to go, are worthwhile. That's not a story like the Boris Johnson story. It's a different kind of story altogether. It's m- it is much more like a Tony Blair at his best story. Blair had this um, saying which he got from Bill Clinton. Um, he attributed to Bill Clinton, which was never stop arguing. You ne- Another, what he meant was never stop persu- trying to persuade, never stop trying to build the picture, never stop trying. Now, Keir Starmer's been in a very, very poor position to be able to build that big picture for a whole series of reasons. Not least, he actually became leader of the opposition during the pandemic. He couldn't even address the country, if you remember when he became leader. So right from the then, for the first two and a half years of his leadership was entirely about the pandemic and what the government was doing about it. No one cared about what the opposition was doing about it. He came immediately out of that into crisis for Labour caused by, you know, the backwash of Corbynism, etc. And also the backwash of an agreement, which was very temporary, that Boris Johnson had done rather well um, and actually was not kind of such a sort of bang. And that was very fragile, but it looked bad uh, at the time of Hartlepool. It's only really I would say, and I don't want to make excuses for him because it may be that he turns out to be inadequate to the job, but I don't think he's been in a position to begin to tell the kind of story we're talking about until very, very recently. And I think we should begin that judging round about now, actually, in this year before the general election. 
I think that's yeah that, that that makes a lot of sense. I do I do think there is a very specific problem around the fiscal constraints that obviously I mean Tony Blair and Gordon Brown uh, applied Ken Clark's fiscal constraints to themselves but that was a very different situation and you know I I I'm not qualified to know actually whether you could go up to 150% debt to GDP ratio uh, and get away with it if you looked credible enough. And whether Rachel Reeves could start rolling the pitch for that. I've spoken to people in the city. I get different views. I mean, Liz Truss, you know, found the limits of of credibility for the UK. But, you know, it, it's possible there's different ways of doing it. You know, so, you know, it, for whatever reason, in the same way that the, that the Labour Party or the Kistama has chosen for reasons that I understand, but I think might be misplaced to simply not talk about Europe in a way that will be necessary. They're not able to talk about what you would do that involves spending money. And a lot of, I mean, if you're talking about the, a story that would make people feel better, is expensive. This is true in one particular more than in any other kind of particular. Uh, the first thing to say is what Liz Truss shows is you only get one tilt at it. Get that wrong. And that's it. That's your toast and so on. So Labour must be very, very kind of keen. And that, in other words, there, there is a magic spot at which what you appear to be promising if you're actually getting, getting in power does not have the confidence of wider markets and you can get killed for it. And that's it. You're over. You're over within a week. So you have to do everything you can to build up the notion of credibility, including talking endlessly about credibility. You are the Office of Budget Responsibility's best ever friend. The IFS is always in and out of your office to tell you what's sensible and sober to do. You listen to the most uh, sombre-looking people with the most serious frowns on when they're talking about what you've got to do. You have to convince whatever you actually do, you have to convince everybody that whatever it is that you're doing is incredibly responsible. It's, it's so important, this. And Labour does not start with a good headwind on issues like that, not least because its leader served under Jeremy Corbyn. Um, so there's a kind of element of, uh, there's always going to be an element of uh, doubt about that. So that is completely understandable. You absolutely have to do that, um, which means you're looking to try and get away with spending as much as you possibly can whilst having the Office of Budget Responsibility and all these people with nasty looks saying, yeah, that's all right. That, we can get with that. That's fine. That's the trick that you have to pull on that side. The side which is more, which is actually more akin, I think, to the thing that we're talking about is saying, and one of the things you have to do in order to do that, in order to afford the things, is you have to put taxes up. And you don't just have to put taxes up for the rich. You're going to have to put taxes up for quite a lot of people. Uh, we may even have to think of new fair taxes. I mean, a typical example of a new fair tax, but with a limited application, is the tax which almost certainly will cut, or rather the exemption being removed on charitable status for private schools. It's an absolute... Now, what you will first get is that you will get an incredible howl, as we did over the Countryside Alliance, from those who lose out from it. And you will get people beating their breasts in front of television saying, actually, I'm a milkman and I've scraped together, you know, this matter so that I could send my kid to... Uh, not to Harrow, etc., but to this rather sort of modest private school down the road because um, Johnny's got a few kind of problems and this is what we did and now they're going to put the fees up. Now, of course, we know that won't be typical, but um, that's, gonna, that, that's, that's going to happen. But nevertheless, Labour's decides it's going to do it. It's going to take the hit. Imagine now that we do that on a bigger scale and we contemplate a revaluation of property in order to tax property more highly because we haven't had a valuation of council tax since it was brought in uh, in 1992. Yeah, rebanding the council tax, that is that is punchy. That is a very, well, very well, punchy well, move. Right, okay. So, I mean, I agree, it's madness, but it, it, then it hasn't happened for such a long time. But you're, yeah, this is going to be... Very interesting. But that begin, But this begins to be the kind of territory which we're talking about or significant increase in income tax for bands lower than the highest bands and so on so you can get more, more revenue in. That will seem more credible in the city because uh, that shows a degree of kind of fiscal prudence and it allows you to afford things. But in order to do that, you have to cope with the fact that the howls of those losing will be huge and you then have to sell it to the rest of the country on the basis... This is what we have to do in order to fulfil these plans to give you the houses that you want, to do the building programme that you want in order to build up, the etc. That's the bit which they are really scared of. 
that you're worried that they'll be too conservative about, isn't it? I mean, social care is a classic example where we've now had three or four elections where you've had variations of a theme, whether it was uh, when Andy Burnham was health secretary or when Theresa May tried to do uh, you know, a reform in 2017, where we sort of all know that the way this country is going to pay for its aging population is that the generation that has sat on huge accrual of housing wealth, that it was it's largely unearned because it was just inflated up there. You're cashing it. Those are the chips that you take at the end of the day of your, at the end of your life in the casino to the cashier. And that's what's paying for social care. We, that's, that's more or less an unavoidable, I think, fact. And yet it's so hard to sell it politically. And so that is exactly the sort of thing I imagine Labour will, a Labour government, a two-term Labour government will have to address. We're pretty much out of time, but there is one thing I wanted to ask you about before we go. You can pick up that social care point as well, if you like, but just a, a swerve, because it goes back to something you said a while ago about in the absence of a, an alternative coherent doctrine to rival liberal democracy or capitalism, uh, the fact that since the essentially failure of organised political Marxism in the 20th century, the left has sort of been roaming around trying to rehabilitate it in various ways, hasn't really alighted on a coherent uh, ideological alternative, as far as I can see. A kind of conspiracy theory, conspiracism seems to be filling the gap in a lot of people's minds. And you wrote a very good book, actually quite a long time ago about this, uh, called Voodoo Histories, which I admired at the time and have come to admire more since because I revisited it. And you sort of anticipated a lot of this stuff and the importance of a lot of this stuff when at the time it seemed like quite a, a niche interest. And you know, yeah, a few nutty people didn't think the moon landings happened, but actually, so what? Maybe as a sort of final thought, looking at it now, to what extent that as a, rather than the coherent doctrine, but as a kind of a corrosive ideologization of irrational thinking as a as a pernicious force in in politics is something that that alarms you or that you think is significant my problem with this is i have realized i think i feel different ways about it on different days sometimes i feel uh looking at polls about what people believe and what they don't other people take terrible kind of fright from this but you know, if you to say 4% of Americans believe in QAnon, well, 4% of Americans believe in anything. It's probably more than 4% of Americans think that they were personally abducted by aliens. And I'm not even joking here. Uh, and so on. So 4% is a kind of, uh, and so I, I look at that and I think, well, maybe that's not so bad. The problem actually with a conspiracy, set of conspiracy theories like that is not that vast numbers of people believe it, but that the kinds of nutty people who go around shooting people can believe it, and therefore they will choose their people to shoot on the basis of what's in the conspiracy theory. And yeah, that could be me, or it could be you, or I mean, in fact, it usually is people like you and me, actually, and now I come to think about it, and for, uh, for very good reasons, being part of the new elite and that other group. <laughs> so I look at it and I think that's not very much. And then at other times, I look at somebody like Elon Musk, who is the world's second richest man, owns Twitter, who will regularly now tweet out ridiculous conspiracy memes about Anthony Fauci and about COVID and about other things. And that really is power. This man has really significant amounts of power, far more power than you and I do, uh, and so on, by virtue of his wealth. And he is so capricious. And some of these people, these ultra-wealthy people of whom there are a significant number around the world, are themselves so ca sometimes so capricious. You kind of half expected them rather evilly, but nevertheless sensibly, to act in their own interest. But when you get people like this who don't act in anybody's interest, but just do nutty things and believe nutty things because it amuses them to do it or because they become convinced of it, it becomes much more kind of worrying because then bigger things can happen that can destabilise societies. And then... You do wonder sometimes, what would it actually take? Uh, you, know, you know how you, we, there's another great uh, moment at the moment for post-apocalyptic uh, television series on the various streaming. Uh, people love the post-apocalypse. What is the thing that might actually trigger our bit of the apocalypse? What would it actually be? How close might we have got to it during COVID? Which, after all, was one of the strangest periods any of us have to live in. Do you take comfort from the fact that we survived it? Or do you worry about the fact that something like that can actually come so close to derailing uh, the world as you know it? And I just... 
Sometimes I think one thing and sometimes I think the other. Sometimes I think most people are essentially rather sensible because rooted as they are in the practicalities of their everyday lives, they will tend to apply the lessons from their everyday lives to the world. Not everybody will. And then sometimes I think it only takes a Wagner group on the streets of Rostov-on-Don to absolutely overturn your situation and so on, it, where it doesn't actually take that many people believing a kind of uh, crazy thing in order for your world to fundamentally change. And I kind of, I think it's fair to say, let's try and avoid that scenario. Yeah, well, it's traditional on this podcast, we like to end on an optimistic note. And, and you've been much more optimistic than me through most of this conversation. And now I get to be the optimistic one, because actually... Of all the, I mean, certainly I, I think, you know, I mean, I spend a lot of time in Russia and I have Russian friends who I communicate with quite often, uh, especially in, during the sort of Wagner mutiny. And, you know, the lesson I took from that is how the depth of resilience we actually have in our democratic culture in this country, you know, and the fact that we get, as I've said earlier, we're going into this, there's going to be an election next year where there will be peaceful regime change and significant regime change, regardless of whether the NatCon people think Rishi Sunak's actually a socialist and the Rump Corbynites <laughs> think Keir Starmer's basically a Tory, all that stuff. Actually, there's a real choice and we're almost certainly going to have some kind of regime change and the losers will concede. And Rishi Sunak is not going to go, actually, I refuse to, to walk away. So that gives me confidence. And on and then again, on the pandemic, I, I read that, I mean, it was obviously terrible and appalling for lots of people. But uh, for me, as a parable of uh, a ultimately the scientific method and sort of factology and basic truth... In the UK, this is, I think the American ex experience sadly was slightly different, but in the UK, actually sort of cutting through and dispelling a miasma of, of fake news and lies and nonsense that had built up around Brexit. So that within less than a year, we went from a mysterious pathogen that no one really knew what it was to having its genomic sequence known to having a vaccine that works or having it in people's arms that is a that, you know i would call it a miracle but that undervalues the scientific force of what happens yeah so it's it was a it was a rational miracle of rationalism that is a miracle it's wonderful it's amazing i agree by the way not something the chinese could do uh interestingly so liberal democracy still works and on that note i think that we're now basically we've got let's not blow the optimistic moment pretty good opportunity <laughs> for me to say uh david ronovich thank you so much for a really stimulating and enjoyable conversation i knew it would be it hasn't disappointed and it's always a pleasure thank you as my mother always told me to always say thank you for having me 